This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. I recently read an article in the Smithsonian Magazine about a manuscript that they got in, 10 pages, eyewitness account from a man that has survived the Black Wall Street massacre. Now, if you don't know about Black Wall Street, I talk about it incessantly. It is the most amazing community, Black-owned, Black-run, Black-inspired community that this country, United States, has ever seen. Uh, founded on uh, a vision, well, actually, they, it was a land, a land, not a land grab, but the United States had set aside land just for Black folk. Of course, it wasn't fertile land. <laughs> they didn't expect it to be anything. Uh, the couple of men that founded it started building homes. Uh, the first guy, O.W. Gurley, built a rooming house, and he built a hotel. So did uh, J.B. Stratford. He bought built hotels, but it was built on this, you know, kind of notion that we can do things ourselves. And I've been on this mission of we are enough, you know, kind of getting that message out there. But before Robert Smith said we are enough, Black Wall Street sent the message and actually delivered. And in that community, they have more doctors, more lawyers than any place else in America, more black doctors and more black lawyers, teachers. Um, they had movie houses and restaurants, of course. As I mentioned, hotels. Actually, the largest hotel, black-owned hotel in America was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Greenwood, um, which is the street that, uh, the main street running through the town. It, there, was, there was a report that several residents in Greenwood had airplanes, that's how wealthy it was. And it was known throughout the country as Black Wall Street. Now, uh, the, the lie was <laughs> uh, May 30th, a young man, he was a shoeshine guy, uh, was going to the bathroom in one of the few places that you could go to the bathroom in the white side of town in this department store. He was in an elevator. Uh, allegedly, a white woman got in. She cried, screamed rape, and ran from the elevator and claimed that the man raped her in like the two seconds she was in the elevator with him. Of course, he was thrown in jail. Lynch mob, uh, you know, in, of course, they want to take him out of jail and, and lynch him. Uh, but the folk from Greenwood, many of whom had agency and self-sufficiency, uh, and many of the men had just come back from World War One, so they had a different level of confidence. They fought for this nation uh, in a way. They had they had weapons. They they came to protect this young man's life. Let him have a, a day in court. Let this play out. And their actual audacity to come on the other side to form a circle around this man and not let him be snatched up and murdered was such an affront to, to this white supremacy that it created, I mean, thousands of white people came. They looked at it as an act of aggression. And what transpired over the next couple of days after this uh, is in the history books. And you can read it for yourself. But the Smithsonian has now uh, a, a eyewitness account, which is so well done, it was written by somebody named Buck Colbert Franklin, who is, he was a lawyer, he had a law firm in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he's also, he was the father of historian John Hope Franklin. And he writes, I could see planes circling in midair. They grew in number and hummed, darted and dipped low. I could hear something like hail falling upon the top of my office building. Down East Archer, I saw the old Midway Hotel on fire, burning from its top, and then another, and then another, and another building began to burn from their top. Lurid flames roared and belched and licked their forked tongues into the air. 
Smoke ascended in the sky in thick black volumes and amid it all, the planes, now a dozen or more in number, still hummed and darted and here and there with the agility of natural birds of the air. He goes on to write about machine guns and, and uh, he said, the sidewalks were literally covered with burning turpentine balls. I knew all too well where they came from and I knew all too well why, why every burning building caught fire from the top. Where or oh, where is our splendid fire department with its half dozen stations? I asked myself, is the city in conspiracy with the mob? Well, his answer was clear. Of course, no fire department would come because for two days, uh, white people were given free reign to ma massacre, to burn down, to obliterate, to decimate, and that's exactly what they did. The charge wasn't rape. The charge was audacity, audacity, the audacity to actually not just live, but to, to, to thrive, to have furs, to have jewels, to have, to have opulence, to have dignity, to not need anybody. How dare you, black person, not need anybody? How dare you be wealthier than the white communities around you? How dare you? That was the crime. And it's interesting, he goes on to write, you know, years later, um, the white people were allowed to come in and loot because black people had jewels and furs. And he, he wrote years later, black women would be in the white part of town and, ha and see white women with their jewels on. Can you imagine? You work hard for something, you buy something, or your husband, or, you, you know, you're, you're given gifts and you're, you, 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 you amass this wealth and somebody can literally come into your house and take it and then have the audacity to wear it in public. So I, I wanted to say, you know, tell the story, check it out for yourself. Go to smithsonianmag.com. The story is there. Um, let me give you the title of it so you can read it. A long lost manuscript contains a searing eyewitness account of the Tulsa race massacre of 1921. Um, and if you happen to get to the Smithsonian now, um, Museum of, of African American History and Culture, you can check it out. I'm sure it's there on display. Uh, but I, I wanted to say this to say, you know, um, in the midst of this, years later, people were even afraid to have uh, to, to build their own communities. And, and even now I hear people talk about, like, if we build something, they're just going to take it. Um, but that's not the answer. What what first of all, the beautiful words written by John Hope, uh, John Frank, uh, John Hope Franklin's dad beautifully. Oh, my God. How brilliant. How much brilliance was lost that day, those two days. Uh, but what I think about when I hear these stories and what I think about when I think about Rosewood and, and the dozens of other communities that were um, decimated that we know of, I, I think about how angry people are. And I think about our job is to continue to make them angry. <laughs> like You don't back away, you double down because the fear is what they're counting on. They're counting on you to be so afraid that you don't, that you give up. No, you're telling me that you can't compete with me. You're telling me that the only way you can beat me is to try to destroy me, firebomb me, kill me, murder me, but you can't kill all of us. And you know what? We won't go anywhere because we've been here since the beginning. Yes, we were here since the beginning. We will be here in the end. And if anything, if anything, double down. If anything, you should get up every day motivated. 
motivated to to let your coworker, your neighbors, everybody know how great you are. You should get up every day with the notion that these people died in Tulsa and Rosewood so that I can live and be even more successful. Yes, people died so that I can do more. Not thank you for, for your sacrifice because nobody wants to sacrifice themselves, but the only way we win this is collectively to then make it even more painful <laughs> for people to even think that they can raise up like this. But yes, that's the answer. More, not less, because we are more than enough. So I wanted to end with that. And because it's Sunday, and if you're listening to this on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever, thank you. Thank you for joining me. But I promised every Sunday to answer questions from Twitter. So if you follow me at Karen Hunter, K-A-R-E-N-H-U-N-T-E-R on Twitter with the hashtag podcast. Ask me anything, I will answer you. So I got two that I'm going to answer today. One is from at Southern Averill, A-V-R-I-L, Southern A-V-R-I-L, April Worsley on Twitter. She asks, Karen, do people judge you for not having children? Do you feel like you have to explain why you didn't have children of your own? Hmm. Um, for many years, not many, not too many, because I've rarely lived my life based on what other people think. Um, and that's number one. You have one life to live. As I just mentioned, things can happen, you know, in the blink of an eye. And if you spent your entire existence on this earth worried about your parents or your neighbors or your friends or, or the or society and what they think about you and you alter your existence based on what people think, then you're not living your life. So I'm sure people do judge me. I don't give a damn if somebody is judging me. And if they want children, then they should have children. What does my having children and not having children have an impact on your life? How does that improve or not improve your life? Yes, these genes should be magnified. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it would be lovely to see little Karens running around or maybe not. But here's the thing. I, I decided at a young age, because my parents had the good sense of having a child when I was 11 and um, made me the built-in babysitter and he tortured me. Uh, I was tortured by that, and I, from the feedings to the diapers to the all, I did all of that. And I decided very, at that 12, 13, I would not be having kids. I don't want to do this. Coupled with that when he started talking, got real fresh and nasty, and I couldn't put my hands on, or I did actually, because back then, you know, whatever. But the, the point is that you could put so much love and energy into a human being and then have them disrespect you. That was unfathomable to me, but that's, those are things, and then the sickness and all that. So yeah, there's a level of selfishness, which I'm not apologizing for, because again, I got one life. I made a decision early on. I also made a decision when I was married that if I had children, that I would quit my job. And so I'm that person. So I'm all or nothing. So had I had kids, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. So this is my path. And my life would be devoted to, I probably would have homeschooled them because I'm an all in type of person. But as soon as I got divorced, I decided I'm never getting married again. Therefore, I'm not having children because to me, and I'm traditional like that because I was raised in a home again where my parents were married till the day my dad closed his eyes. So I traditionally, I love the notion of, you know, married with kids. And when I see my, my friends, my high school friends and other people, uh, you know, with kids, I, I you know, there's, there's actually no pang of like remorse 
But at the same time, you know, I understand the draw. I mean, it is the thing that keeps humanity going is that draw, that desire. But I've never really, you know, I, I got I got it beaten out of me quite early. And what I've decided also, because I'm single minded like that, that had I had children, I don't personally believe in the juggle juggling kids and you know husband and children and it's a lot and most people don't do it well and you can lie to yourself and say that you're you know I can do everything no one can do everything I made a choice I'm happy with it if people judge me that's their problem not mine and I think that you know there aren't there enough people <laughs> do we need more people in the world probably not so um, that's a great question, but I do know that there are a lot of women who want to have children and, and you know, haven't had children, and for them that is a, a source of pain, and for folk who are in that position, you know, I'm sorry, you know, that you are in that position, um, but the goal here in life is to live your, your best life and to live a life that makes you happy. So if children make you happy, have children. If being married makes you happy, be married. If being single makes you happy, be single. But do not alter your life or live your life based on what you think other people think. Because the truth of the matter is, most people who are looking at you, if you have time to look at somebody else's life and have a judgment, then that means you're not living your life. So get get something to do. <laughs> live your life and leave people alone. Uh, second question from Kendra, Kendra Gunter. At Kendra Gunter, she said, uh, as an adjunct professor, what is one example of your teachings that made a profound impact on your students? Now, number one, I'm not an adjunct professor. I'm actually a distinguished lecturer at Hunter College and have been there in that position for the last 10 years. And I was an adjunct. So I started out when I was... Um, it's like 20 years ago. I started as, as an adjunct professor, and that's cool. Uh, but I'm actually a full-time professor. And what has uh, what profound impact? I don't know. You know, like I, I go in every semester. First of all, every semester is different. But I go in with the thought that I want every student leaving my class with actionable skills that they can take into the workplace. That's how I look at it. And that's, it's not vocational, but I'm teaching journalism. I've taught publishing. I teach talk radio as well. I want to be able to, to, to say with all, you know, confidence that anyone who takes my class will leave with the skills to go out into the world and body it. <laughs> and that's what I do. So I don't necessarily even teach technically. I'll teach you how to write a lead and you, you can learn how to do a story and how to interview and all these other things. And, you know, on the talk radio side, finding your voice and things like that. But what I spend the greatest amount of time doing is is engaging with my students and helping them to learn how to navigate personalities and people how to talk to people because that's the greatest skill you can you can have like this is a world of relationships and the better you are at navigating relationships the better you will be at being successful so that's the greatest gift that I give and I think it, it probably has had a profound impact at least that's what the students tell me but maybe they're just blowing smoke up my ass because they they want favor I don't know but uh that's 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 how I approach teaching and I think about it from my standpoint, because I hated going to class. What would make me come to class? More importantly, what would I have wanted as a, as a student? I'm paying X amount of dollars per credit. I, I need to get my money's worth. And that's how I look at it. So I, I tout that I, what I teach, you can go out and make, make a living. And so far, most of my students are working. Uh, most, some of them are working for me. How about that? Okay, so that's it. Uh, you can ask me anything at Karen Hunter, hashtag podcast on Twitter, 
And I'll answer maybe in a future Sunday. Till next time, I appreciate you joining me. Thank you. Spread the word. Share the link. Uh, tell tell everybody about it. It's free, this podcast. And um, I appreciate your support. <laughs>